Hi everybody, you're so welcome to the Recovery from Relapse meeting. Today's date is the 19th of December 2023 and I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome Laurie C. Laurie comes from Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada. Um, he came to OA in, on February the 11th, 1986 and I'm now going to hand it over to him to share his experience, strength and hope. Take it away Laurie. Now you can hear me. Yes. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Laurie. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I, I did say these words first on February the 11th, 1986, which is an amazing I thought for me. And I, you know, that's 30, 38 years, right? It will be 38 years in February. Um, but I, I didn't get fully abstinent, fully recovered uh, until approximately May the 1st of 1993. So I went through seven years of in and out relapse, and uh, I want to talk about that uh, and to give some hope um, and maybe some of my own experience could, that could shorten that time period uh, in the, in that in that time. Um, I think that there are three problems that OA has as an addiction fellowship that make it more difficult for many people uh, in the in the fellowship. Uh, the first is considering whether or not we have a life or death problem that's as serious as um, as the other addictions that are far more dramatic than ours. Um, the the uh, you know it's it's easy to imagine a drug addict or an alcoholic uh, walking out into traffic, taking a drink, walking out into, or you know sh shooting up or something. They're walking out into traffic, getting hit by a car or. Having or losing everything uh, by uh, one spree, it's easy to imagine a gambler doing the same thing, uh, losing the house, losing a, a you know a life savings. Uh, there's there are dramatic moments in the lives of many many uh, addicts, and most of the addiction fellowships have those dramatic have those dramatic moments. Uh, our addiction is for the most part in people at the absolute extremes of over uh, of overweight or underweight uh, maybe one more binge of their addiction might cause a life threatening illness but our our addiction is one that uh, has a sense of well i could have some and it's not going to kill me today um uh, and we 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 often don't stress the long-term uh, death by a thousand cuts that our addiction uh, brings us. Um, we also have to distinguish between those who have the equivalent of being addicted to, say, coffee and need it for two cups in the morning to sort of get up, and those who need 20 cups of coffee to get through the day. There's a big difference in that kind of addiction. I was the latter, not the former. In the former, it's an addiction, but it's not medically dangerous. The latter, it's medically dangerous. And I did experience uh, one time that caused me to quit uh, coffee uh, that actually, you know, caused me some some medical anxiety. Um, so treating this addiction as serious is one of the most difficult issues that OA has to deal with. There are no drinking channels, no smoking channels, no drug channels on television. Whereas there are food chains, um, it is one of the last socially acceptable vices. Uh, you know, smoking isn't as socially acceptable as as a well, it isn't as acceptable as at all as it was when I was growing up. Um, you know, alcohol, same thing. Uh, 
Um, but but uh, we still gather around a table and we still have these moments of social uh, 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 convening that that hovers around the table. For those for overeaters and for undereaters too, because there's all stress. We have body image issues, um, which uh, cause some issues with people. So, treating it seriously is is really hard. For me, it wasn't as hard for two reasons. One is I saw the effect of compulsive uh, overeating on members of my family. I'm I'm in a family that is diabetes prone, and I saw what diabetes did to them. Uh, you know, it's the hidden killer. You don't die from diabetes. For the most part, you die from problems caused by diabetes, strokes and heart attacks and uh, amputations and uh, blindness and uh, the gradual deterioration of your body. Um, so I saw that. And the other was that I was told by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who had been literally in the gutter of our hometown, the main street of our of my hometown, and lifted out of it by members of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, who told me that all the time, I met so many of them, told me all their stories, and, and they were now incredible people who had what I wanted, but I can't drink it very much. Uh, you know, one of the sadnesses, uh, I love the taste of Guinness, uh, for instance, I'm speaking to the people who are in Ireland, but I can't drink it. It's just, I don't like the alcohol in it. Um, so uh, it, it's a sad thing, but I and I wanted to be an alcoholic just so I could have what these people had. So when my friend told me that I should take my food as seriously as he took his alcohol, it gave me permission to treat it seriously. And I, I sort of was allowed to do that in a way that a lot of other people don't. They have to they have to bear the uh, the brunt of sort of treating it seriously while the rest of the world doesn't. It's just a matter of pushing yourself away from the table. Why don't you just say no or join a support group, you know, uh, or join a weigh and pay plan or something like that. Go on a diet. You'll lose weight. And then once you lose your weight, you just don't have to eat that much. Um, and there are many other there's so many other solutions um, that, that, you know, I, I'm just reading a, a book that I got free. Um, you know, uh, imagine that you had that your problem is a pig. And you and the pig that is giving you directions, and you keep having to say no to the pig. Well, that sure wouldn't have worked on me, you know. So that was one of the biggest uh, problems I think that OA has. The second is that our group conscience is, and and I'm glad it is, that we whatever it is we have to abstain from has to be individually decided upon. And I can eat some things other people can't eat, and other people can eat some things I can eat. Uh, I can indulge it. I can't indulge in certain eating behaviors that other people can indulge in. And um, and because we are a an umbrella fellowship, we 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 don't agree on any particular plan of eating. We we have to develop our own plan of eating. Uh, we have our own individual things that we have to abstain from. It makes it difficult to convey to other people the urgency of not of having to abstain to give them support you know so there's so many people around us who are more than willing to say why would you be worried about ice cream you know just have a taste of it it's so good you know this particular brand or something like that and they don't understand that that to me ice cream is the equivalent of alcohol to an alcoholic it isn't to everyone in the fellowship but it is to me um so Figuring out what it is that we have to abstain from is another problem. 
and and the third is that we come we are mostly for the most part people who are isolated who were people who feel more victimized than victimizers we we, we feel that we have suffered um we are so in need of a sense of support and love and fellowship that we mistake the fellowship for the 12 steps. And this is this happens, as I'm told, in other meetings, in other fellowships where people say, just go to meetings and 90 meetings in 90 days, where they should be told, do the steps. The steps are what give us recovery. When I first started in OA, I got a sponsor right away, and he was terrific. He's from AA and also and then joined OA. And his problem, his addiction problem, was binging. He ate too much, and when he abstained from binging, went on a diet and lost the weight, and worked the twelve steps, he no longer felt as if he had to go back to binging. He was he had that freedom from the need to binge. And he told me that's all I had to do. It fit in with all the diets I'd ever been on. It told me that once I lost my weight, I could eat things in moderation. And that's what he said I could do, that I could. And he was a lovely man. I don't want to blame him for anything. I just didn't think properly. Um, he, uh, he basically gave me the impression that I could go on a diet, so I had to lose weight. And once I went on that diet, I could go back to eating anything I wanted in moderation. I followed my old way and pay plan that told me at that time that I could have either once a week, I could have either two cookies or a, a scoop of ice cream it was a half a scoop. And they gave such instructions about using a, a knife to, you know, make sure it was only exactly a scoop uh, or a half a donut a week. And every time I lost my weight in that way and pay pro program and began treating myself with those um, uh, with one of those things, it always turned into all of those things and more and more of them. And that but and that's what I happened in for the first seven years in this fellowship. I would lose the weight, go on a diet, I'd work the steps as hard as I could and I really worked the steps and my sponsor really helped me work the steps in a, in a good way, not the way I, I do now, but a good way. But once I lost the weight, I said, fine, now I can eat in moderation. Um, and, and so my my one of the main problems in my relapses over seven years was not accepting that I had to figure out what it was I had to abstain from and to realize that abstaining meant I would never eat that again on a day-to-day. -day. I wouldn't eat that today. You know, if you want to put it a day at a time, I required an analysis. I did not understand this until I began. I mean, I studied the big book for the first seven years in my fellowship because that's all we had when I when I joined. We didn't have any of the other uh, OA uh, books. And I read it and cross read it and referenced it and underlined it and highlighted it. But I rejected the doctor's opinion, which said we must believe that we are that we cannot take in any alcohol. We must believe that there's a physical problem as well. And using the concept of the allergy, I said, I, I'm not allergic to food. I love food. I love the taste of food. I love the texture of food. I love the smell of food. 
uh, how could I be allergic to it? It wasn't until I uh, two things happened in my life uh, within a few months of each other. The first was that a loving, shy, the shyest woman in the room, member of OA, looked at me in a way that was different from everyone else in the rooms that I was going to. I never left the fellowship. People would say to me, how are you, Laurie? I'd say, fine. I was gaining weight. I was talking too much. I was clearly talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Uh, and everyone would say, well, good. I'm glad you're fine. Just keep coming back. It works if you work it. Just bring a lot of love. You know, all those wonderful slogans. And I just kept coming and kept talking. I'd love to hear you talk. You know so much about the history of AA. Anyway, this woman came up to me at a meeting, at the beginning of a meeting. And she said, how are you, Laurie? And I answered as I always did, fine. And she looked at me, and I don't know if my camera will do this, but she said, I mean, really? And um, I realized I'm in terrible, terrible shape. And I admitted to her I was in terrible shape. And I began to work with her. She didn't have a way of working the steps as much as sort of a way of accountability and support for doing my best to work whatever it was I was doing. And about two or three months after that, I obviously had enough to have a man ask me to, to sponsor him. And I met with him um, uh, and found out that he had been a member of AA for 15 years, sober for 15 years. And I, and I said, you know, how did you do it? He said, well, I read the big book. And I said, well, I read the big book too. And he said, I know I read the big book. And I said, well, I read the big book too. Uh, you know, my copy is well-worn. And he explained that he was part of a group that studied in AA, that studied the uh, the big book according to a suggestion, according to a concept that the big book contains the directions for working the steps. And then uh, they do. Um, and, and that uh, he used the big book as a set of directions. I said, well, you teach me that and I'll, I'll teach you or we'll share together what I know about OA and about all the food issues. So we began to study the big book in earnest, and uh, he clearly knew the big book better than I did. Uh, and we start with the doctor's opinion. And I said, ah, this allergy stuff, I'm not allergic to food. He said, look up the word allergy. And I did. Now, I, I, I have a master of an MA in English, and I, I, have to, I have the two greatest dictionaries of the English language with me, an American one, uh, uh, Oxford as well. And uh, I thought I knew a lot about words. And he had, a, I don't know, grade nine education, but he knew, he said, I said, the, the word allergy isn't in these old books published in 1910, 1911. And uh, I had to look them up in the supplement. And I realized what he said was right, that an allergy doesn't mean that I break out in hives or rashes or develop an anaphylactic shock. It means an abnormal reaction to a substance. And once I accepted that concept that it was an abnormal reaction, my abnormal reaction, as the doctor points out in the doctor's opinion, was cravings, uncontrollable cravings, that there were certain things that caused me cravings. And it was my responsibility to figure out what those things were and to abstain from them. And if I worked the steps, some magic would happen. I mean, when I was on a diet, I was abstaining from these things, but I didn't know I was abstaining from them. So I worked out what my problem was, and it was different from what you hear often people hear in the program. But any sponsor who tells you that they you have to follow their 
um, plan of eating is acting contrary to the group conscience of OA as expressed by our literature, which says we each of us have to figure it out. And, you know, any sponsor says, I won't sponsor you unless you abstain from the things I abstain from. There's something very wrong there. I sponsor, I'm, I, I sponsor people with all kinds of different plans of eating. So it doesn't matter to me because what they have to abstain from is different from what I have to abstain from. Big deal. I also began to realize that there were eating behaviors I had to abstain from that were psychologically the equivalent of cravings. You know, once I started them, I couldn't stop. So I accepted finally this concept from the doctor's opinion that there were things that I could label as once I started, I couldn't stop. And that doesn't mean every time, but it means over a period of time. Uh, you know, I mean, when I first, you know, if only I had done this earlier, but I, you know, I was at one point, I have eaten entire buckets of ice cream. I've eaten buttered popcorn that uh, you, you can't see it, but huge vats of buttered popcorn. I've eaten entire cakes. I've eaten, uh, you know, huge amounts of uh, foods of, of every kind. Um, and the eating behaviors uh, assisted me in doing that. Keeping my mouth busy was one of the eating behaviors that my way and pay plan told me I should I should do. But in fact, that caused me to want to eat more. And I had to cut my eating between meals. I had to just abstain from all chewing and sucking between meals because my mouth loves to be exercised. And uh, keeping my mouth busy, chewing gum, uh, eating non-caloric foods made me eat more caloric foods uh, uh, when I would have my regular meals. Uh, I also found that I was the kind of person, this has a lot to do with my childhood, who ate up to the top of their neck figuratively. You know, I needed to be full, but beyond full. I needed to be stuffed. And I had to abstain from that and figure out a way in terms of volume of not eating any more than my body needed, or in the case of having to lose weight, eating less than my body needed. So that was my first major mistake in a way. And uh, as uh, I worked the steps, uh, I worked them the big book way. But I, you know what? As much as I think the big book way of working the steps is, is a great way, and I'm happy to help anyone who wants to know what those directions are, I've met so many people, and some of them are my idols in a way, been absent longer than I have, have had a much more difficult uh, life than I have, have, are more spiritual than I am, who don't use the big book instructions. So I'm more than happy to say that it's the 12 steps. It's, you work them as honestly as you can. The main issue is that what we all have in common is not the way we work the steps, but that A, we abstained while working the steps. Uh, B, we work the steps as hard, as honestly, and as quickly as we could while abstinent. We receive the promises that after step nine, we wouldn't want to return to those um, things that we abstain from. And then we gave of ourselves more than we thought we could. And that's the thing that my idols have in common. I, you know, one of my idols said to me once, said, people want what I have but they're not willing to work as hard as I do to have what I have. And, you know, we we are, for most of us, we're listless. You know, our uh, addiction, whether we're undereaters or overeaters, make us unable to function. We, we, we function better not doing anything. And we're used to that. At least I was, and I think that's true. Undereaters uh, don't have any energy, and overeaters, they may have energy, but they have no ability to, to move quickly or well. 
Um, and so we get used to a kind of a paralysis. You know, I remember reading the chapter or working with others um, and having um, the, uh, you know, you, you may be jangling of the telephone at all hours of the day and night. You may have to go to jails. You may have to visit families and comfort distraught families. And I remember saying in my early days in OA, well, they have to do that, but we have the telephone, you know, which is a very lazy way of doing things. Um, so my friends work hard. They devote hours and hours a day to carrying the message to those who still suffer. And that keeps them absent. The other thing I discovered uh, within about a year of working, of, of, of getting abstinent and getting that promise of neutrality was that I had misunderstood step 10. Uh, and I, I want to give this as advice to any of you who ever worked the steps, gotten abstinent, began to live properly according to a spiritual way, and then found yourselves relapsing. Um, I interpreted step 10 as it is written when we recite the steps. Continued to take moral inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So I would monitor my actions and apologize or make up for whatever my actions were. My kids spilled milk and I yelled at them. I would then apologize to them for yelling at them because that was an, a wrong reaction to what they did. Um, when I look back at what was going on in my life at the time, um, it was a very difficult time in my family, my, my a number of people whom I loved very much were dying. One had Alzheimer's and the other two uh, were dying of cancer. And I loved them very much. And, and they were very dear to my, my wife. They were very dear to our children, our young children. And the stress of dealing with them and trying to help them, and especially my wife trying to help them, and my having to deal more with the kids and my sadness at losing them and the sadness of the whole situation while I was still trying to earn a living and keep my head above water in other ways, caused me to yell at the only people I could yell at, my kids. But I wasn't dealing with what was going on in my life. I was dealing with the immediate things of what I'd done to my kids. So what I began to realize, as, as, as you look at the directions in the big book for step 10, was that step 10 is literally what I did in steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, in the, done in the context of recovery. And so whenever I am restless or irritable or discontented, whenever food becomes kind of more interesting, uh, even though I don't, I, I don't go to it, if it just becomes a little bit more interesting, if I feel bored by my meetings, if I feel annoyed by something that keeps going on and on in my life, what is happening is that my resentments are beginning to pile up again. You know, if, if at step nine, I've cleared up the past, right? The big book talks about cleaning up the past. But between the time I finished step nine and today, there's another past that has occurred. It may be similar to what happened before, but it's different. You know, I may have gotten over my anger or my resentments or my frustration re regarding relatives, siblings, uh, acquaintances at step nine. But as time goes on, if I'm still having a relationship with those people, Whatever they did that bothered me then is beginning to bother me now. And I do step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine of them. But that's what step step 10 is. Once I started to do that, I found myself 
And of course, in step 11, I did meditations. That's my worst step. I, I am not a spiritual person in the, in the, I'm not religious. I'm quite non-religious. Um, I'm, I'm quite, uh, I'm, I would call myself an atheistical agnostic or agnostical atheist. Uh, but I, I was doing step 11. Okay. Good enough. And step 12, I was doing really hard, really much, very much. In those seven years of relapse, I was doing whatever I could um, to help carry the message. But I, what I wasn't doing was clearing up the past. As time went on, as I began to realize the mistake I had made back then, I began to do step 10s, which are four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. I write them down. I talk to another person, four, five. I say the step seven prayer because obviously I want to get rid of my defects of character. And I figure out, I figured out what amends I had to make. Now, usually the amends that I have to make when I do a step 10 are attitudinal uh, adjustments. They're not, you know, I, I know enough now not to do harm to other people other than by who I am or how I act or, you know, I can't, I have to um, adjust my attitudes. If I'm bored by OA meetings, I have to figure out why am I bored? What's going on? What are my amends? Well, my amends are to do a better job of carrying the message to those who still suffer, as an example. So those were the two major mistakes I made uh, in, in, in my relapse. So what, the most important message that I received as I studied the big book, and again, that's this is the third problem I think that OA has, is that we're not clear about what the steps do. Five minutes is perfect. That works out well. So the most important message was the simple message of the big book, which is that step one sets out the problem. And the problem is that once we start, we can't stop. And our real problem is not that we can't indulge in certain foods or behaviors or ingredients, but that we keep finding reasons to return to them. That's the insanity that we give ourselves reasons that seem good at the time that are never, ever, ever good in uh, to go back to that which we know we have to abstain from. That's the vicious circle or what Dr. Silkworth uh, in the doctor's uh, in his later writings called the double whammy. We can't stop once we've started and we can't stop from starting. We can't stop once we've started is the physical or the deep psychological cravings issues that we get and we have to abstain from those things. But the real problem is keeping sober, keeping abstinent. And that's what the steps do. The only solution that we have found is to have some form of personality change sufficient to overcome our addiction. That's the definition of a spiritual experience found uh, in the appendix, uh, appendix two to the big book, a personality change sufficient to overcome our addiction. And that is a spiritual experience, spiritual awakening. For many people, it is a God experience. For me, it's it's that I no longer am blocked off from what I deeply believe in, which are deep human values of truth and love and justice and beauty. Uh, I'm no longer blocked off. I, I feel as if I'm more connected when I'm living in harmony with what I deeply believe in. And this is true for everyone. If they deeply believe in a particular God, and they're living in addiction, they're cutting themselves off from what they deeply believe in. Same with me with my addiction, with, the way, with my uh, deep uh, beliefs. Once I'm connected to them, 
once the blockage between my heart, where my deepest values lie, and my head, uh, where I act and think and react to life, is, 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 is lifted. The blockage is lifted. I'm in harmony. When I'm in harmony, I'm sane. When I'm sane, I have this incredible miracle of someone offering me ice cream and, and my being able to say, I don't want it. It actually goes bad in our freezer because people bring it, bring ice cream over for, for desserts and it just lies there. No one eats it once it's finished for the one occasion that people bring it for. That's a miracle for me. That would never have happened when I was uh, uh, in my addiction. And it's more of a miracle to me than feeling you know, a spiritual awakening. It's that I don't want to go back to that which I know caused me uh, cravings, causes me cravings. So the, the message of the big book is, one is the problem. Can't stop once we've started. Can't stop from starting. Step two, we need a spiritual experience. Step three, we decide to work the steps. Nothing else. Step three is not a major thing. It's just a decision to work the rest of the steps. Step four through nine is we clear the blockage between our heart and our mind. Step 10, we continue to keep that blockage gone by clear, keeping the passageway clean. Step 11, we continue to focus on that which we deeply believe in and keep that uppermost in our minds and see every day whether our, our life has been lived as best as it can be. And step 12, we keep reminding ourselves of the hell we used to live in by carrying and, and the hope that we can carry by carrying the message to other people. And the wonderful thing about the steps is that no matter how far down we have fallen, how awful the things we have experienced are, and so many of my friends in Hawaii have experienced far worse than I ever, ever had, horrible, horrible traumatic childhoods and, and, and lives, they can say to other people, they can give them the hard, loving truth, hey, stop whining. I have worse than you, and I got out of it, and I don't want to eat anymore. And it's a better life that I live. So don't live in your illness and your addiction, live in the hope of recovery. And I, I think that's a, a, a great message. Um, so I think I'm about done. And I thank you very much for the opportunity to carry the message. I, I um, sent a chat to Rita, I will have to leave right on the hour. There's a cab that's coming to take me to the airport. I've been visiting my my family in, in Ottawa. Uh, and uh, I'm leaving today. So I'm sorry, I can't stay until the end of the meeting. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you so thank you so much, Laurie. I'm just gonna read out a little page from Big Book to finish your story. Most of us think that this it's from spiritual experience, mine's falling apart here. Most of us think that this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is bar, a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation.